still listening to Alabama's only Union Talk radio program, The Valley Labor Report. We are now in the second half of the program that we call Overtime. We are off of FM radio, free from the shackles of the FCC censors. We appreciate everybody staying tuned. Uh, Like if you haven't. Um, Logan says, I'm from Chattanooga and this makes me so happy. I have a friend that works there and it's so terrible at that plant. Indeed. Uh, so here's what I want you to do, Logan. I want you to talk to your friend and get your friend plugged into UAW if they're not already. Mm-hmm. I also want your friend to check out our Unions 101, Unions 201 playlist. Just check it out. See if there's anything there of interest. Uh, there's other great stuff out there, too. Um, if your friend's not very familiar with unions, for example, uh, Kim Kelly wrote a great explainer article for Teen Vogue a few years back that I still refer people to. Mm. Um, and so now would be a great time for your friend to be kind of getting educated and learning um, and getting involved, uh, learning their rights. Uh, you can find out all sorts of information on the NLRB website. Uh, Na- National Labor Relations Board uh, will have quite a bit of information. So, yeah, mm-hmm. talk to your friend uh, and encourage your friend to reach out to us if they need anything or uh, just want to talk. Stidham Family Gospel says, hello, all UAW 952 BC here uh, <laughs> in the aerospace industry. That's pretty cool. And um, you probably don't know this, uh, Stidham Family, but I'm a big gospel head. Uh, so you can bet that I clicked on your profile picture and I'm going to listen to some of your music after the show's over. So, um, but <laughs> I love gospel music. Big fan, big fan of gospel music. Um, and uh, they said our cola is set is a set amount for every hour of work. This year was um, 86 cents, 86 and a half cents per hour. So, yeah, uh, very cool. Very cool. Yeah, cola is really important. All right, uh, like I said, the phone number is 844-899-8857 if you want to call in. The line is open. Um, uh, Adam, Limestone County had an election last week. Um, Talk to us about that. What's going on with that? Oh, yeah. So there was an election last week in Limestone County. Uh, You probably didn't hear about it. Nobody did. Um, And what it was was a tax renewal. I want to be very clear about this. This is a renewal of a tax that is already on the books. It's not a new tax. It just says okay to renew what's already there. 
Well, voters in Limestone County, which is uh, one of, if not the fastest growing county in North Alabama, uh, or actually in the entire state, uh, the voters did reject this property tax renewal. Um, there were actually four different taxes on various ballots within Limestone County. It's kind of weird. You have the city of Athens. You have the Limestone County schools, right, who these are uh, folks who do not live in the city of Athens but live in Limestone County. You also have people who live in the city of Madison but who are in Limestone County. Uh, and so there were some different ballots out, um, but nobody showed up. Nobody. Nobody voted. Uh, well, I'll say nobody. 3%. 3% turnout. Mm. Um and I'm just going to say that I am a pretty engaged citizen. Uh, I check the news on a regular basis. I have rarely missed an election my whole life. Uh, and I'm not a fan of electoral politics, really, but I still vote. Um, I did not know about this election until Saturday. I was out of town for Tuesday. And, of course, Saturday was way too late to request an absentee ballot. Uh, same for my wife. She didn't know about it either. Um, and so she also was out of town Tuesday, could not vote. I asked around some friends and neighbors, family members. They didn't know about it either. And these are, again, these are people who pay attention, um, who vote on a regular basis, people who uh, in some cases have ties to education and are very much interested in this because these property tax renewals, what they fund is the local funds in our school systems. Because in every school district, you have locally funded positions. You know, it could be extra teachers, it could be custodians, cafeteria workers, uh, special education assistants, um, art teachers, uh, for example. Um, you know, so the state does not fund all of the the teaching units and support staff that you need to run a successful school district. You have to have local funding for that. Um, and so this is the local funding that was rejected. And um, frankly, I think it is a little bit disturbing. Um, there was misinformation spread uh, that it was a new tax, according to Madison City School Superintendent Ed Nichols. And I can attest that I received a strange text message. It was from a 256 area code number. Uh, so that's our area code. I received a, a 256 area code text message on election day morning uh, telling me to vote no against this tax, that our taxes are high enough already. Uh, and that was concerning because I had not seen the first bit of effort on vote yes mm. to renew. Now, and I mentioned this to you yesterday, Jacob, that the city of Huntsville had its property tax renewal uh, a few years back. And you remembered, just yeah. like I remembered, there was a, a legitimate yes campaign that was run. Um, and it was all sorts of people were involved with it. You had PTA moms and the school's foundation type people, um, businesses, um, you know, school board members were speaking out about it on a regular basis. Uh, there are restrictions on school districts and, and how much they are allowed to campaign for a tax renewal vote um, because of some history there in the legislature kind of cracking down on that kind of activity. Um, 
sources within Limestone County Schools told me the only thing they were told about it was through an email from their superintendent on Monday, the day before the election. That's past mm-hmm. the time to vote absentee and a little late to get the word out. Um, and so I think what happened is that there was literally no campaign to say vote yes. But there clearly was, at least on some level, a vote no campaign. Um now, whether it's tied to local Republicans or what, you know, I, I think it's to be determined. Somebody sent me a text message, which means either there was a volunteer or a paid staffer sending out text in Limestone County on Election Day mm. in opposition to a tax we already pay. Right. In Limestone County schools, this make no illusion about it, is not a well-funded school system. Okay, this is not Mountain Brook or Vestavia. Limestone County Schools just now added art teachers to the high schools like last year. They had no art in entire high schools, no art classes. Um, it, it, there's, you know, a real stark difference in the level of staffing provided at Limestone County Schools, even compared to like Huntsville City Schools. Mm. And so... You know, if there were cuts in funding, if this tax renewal does not happen, it would be devastating. It would be devastating to the school systems. Uh, The good news is the tax uh, sunsets in 2025, which means there is time to request another election. Um, But that's going to take a little time. You've got to go through process. Um, You've got to request the election. Um, But... Lord help us if if they don't run a yes campaign, um, because turnout was three percent. That's two thousand three hundred eighty nine of the county's seventy seven thousand nine hundred sixty one registered voters. Wow. Mm. Uh, And so what it appears is that a very, 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 very small margin of anti-tax right, right wing extremists. Um, came out and uh, it killed funding for local schools in North Alabama in one of the fastest growing counties in the state. Uh, so mm. that's a travesty. And frankly, I point blame at everyone, even myself. But the fact that I didn't know until Saturday is testament to how poorly it was advertised. Where was the local media? Where was the superintendent and the school board members? Uh, where were the education organizations? Right? Superintendents, the school boards, the educators, the principals, they all have organizations that they pay dues to. Where were they? What about the PTA? You know? There's just, there's just a lot of uh, questions that I have about how this could happen. Uh, and, you know, mo- more importantly, what's going to happen next? Right. Um, so is there a plan in place? Um, as a resident of Limestone County, um, I plan on contacting the school board and finding out what the hell's going on, because uh, this is really sad. And, and we shouldn't see our students and our educators put at risk uh, because folks didn't want to run a campaign. So that's all well, I got to say about it. What about the AEA? 
why are I mean, did they not weigh in on these kinds of things? Uh, that's a good question. Where were they? Uh, I mean, there are, you know, restrictions on some of the things they can do electorally because of their agreement with the Republicans to do payroll dues deduction. Mm. Uh, and so they have, you know, sacrificed some. You yeah, know, but they have their pack, right? I mean, they oh, can't, yeah, absolutely. They, yeah, I mean, they it, like, obviously, I I would just assume that in the same way. Well, I mean, I don't know. I guess unions can unions use dues money to advocate for can can unions use dues money for electioneering in nonpartisan ways like for an ordinance i don't know i think uh i've been told that c3s are able to do that um to to some degree at least i mean i'm not a lawyer by any stretch Uh, i get that there are restrictions on various entities and how they engage in electoral activity yeah nevertheless they've got the pack though and they can do like whatever the hell they want with that right I mean, if they could send me a postcard encouraging me to vote for Republicans right. every legislative cycle, um, I think they could probably send a postcard telling people to vote for property tax renewal. Yeah. Um, but now, I, my understanding is that the AEA doesn't use their state PAC for local elections. Hmm. Um, but, you know, perhaps they should reconsider. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. a thought. All right. Well, thank you for that. Sir, appreciate the updates. Uh, very important, you know, really important stuff going on there. Um, and hopefully the second election is, is a little bit better than the first. Yeah, and uh, thankfully Connor has some, you know, answers for us because he has quite a bit of experience. Hopefully he uh, has some guidance on how we can do better. Because um, <laughs> that sucks. That just yeah. really, I mean, it stings. It sucks. Like... Three percent turnout. Teachers' jobs were on the line. <clears throat> yeah, uh, and nobody freaking knew about it. No, I, yeah. I mean, I I even checked the limestone, uh, the Athens limestone news courier, which is the daily paper in the county. They didn't have anything printed wow. on Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday. Wow. Um, so like that's weird. Yeah, that's bonkers. So anyway, hopefully Col- Connor can uh, fill us in. Uh, yeah. While he tells us a little bit about what he's been up to. There you go. Uh, and we've got Connor in the Zoom now, right? That's right. <clears throat> Great. Connor Lewis is the president of the Seven Mountains Central Labor Council. He is a member of the News Guild CWA. He uh, won the presidency of the Labor Council on a uh, campaign uh, platform, a campaign promise to get an eighth mountain, is my understanding. Is that right? <laughs> Yeah, you know, we're starting with the eighth and then maybe scaling out to the ninth, the tenth. Like the end goal is to have all the mountains, but right. we got to yeah. start small. All of the mountains, uh, moving them to the Seven Mountain Central Labor Council jurisdiction. So there you go. Um, one and chain at a time. One, one. <laughs> that's yep. right. And and I haven't actually mentioned this on the show because this is the first show since this happened. But uh, but we are now. Um, what what's the word? Uh, we are now colleagues as, I don't know, I'm president of the Labor Council here, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, so we are nice. now Nice. Congratulations. So, thank you. Thank you. Um, so we're going to talk some more about your, your Labor Council stuff uh, here in a second, because you've been doing some really great stuff with the Labor Council up there, and um, hoping to... Uh, 
hoping to learn uh, from from what y'all have been doing uh, both during during uh, you know this conversation and in future. But uh, you reached out to us because uh, you're a News Guild member, and there's a lot of organizing in the News Guild to call for a ceasefire. Um, and there has been uh, a lot of pushback um, in the News Guild, uh, within the News Guild, and, and from without the News Guild, I think is, is my understanding. But, but you know, more importantly, we're concerned with, with, our, with our fellow members and, and you know, convincing them. And uh, there's been a lot of push pushback from within the guild about objectivity, um, and so you have been uh, doing a lot of doing a lot of reading and research and and sharing a lot of this stuff about objectivity in the news guild and and how you know the union has in the past kind of interpreted this journalistic ethic, um, and and how you know they have. Um, interpreted it in maybe a different way than some people want to today. Um, so, so talk to us a little bit about that, about why, why is a ceasefire important? I guess we can start there, you know, just generally, why would it be good for a ceasefire in Gaza to happen as you see it? Well, you know, I think that one of the key ways looking at it from the perspective of the guild as a union and why it's important for the guild specifically to speak up here. Um, this has been one of the deadliest conflicts. In fact, not one of it is the deadliest conflict on record for media workers. Um, mm -hmm. The Committee to Protect Journalists first began tracking this in uh, 1992. And there has been no conflict that has had more civilian casualties, including the entirety of the Iraq war, the in either one, um, or, you know, um, Afghanistan, um, take your pick. Um, and certainly in the Ukraine, there have not been uh, nearly as many media workers killed uh, as in Gaza in a very short span of time. And I believe that the number is over 50 media workers um, who have been uh, killed overwhelmingly by Israeli airstrikes. Um, I mean, this is a um, horrifying uh, conflict for a variety of reasons. But one of the things that's really important in moments like this and, um, you know, in times of war and in times of conflict is to actually have the ability to shine a light on what is happening on the ground. I mean, that was always the big difference uh, in Vietnam that really changed, I think, American sentiment about America's role in the conflict was when images started coming back to Americans of what was happening in Vietnam, images of the coffins coming home, of those journalists actually shedding a light on the conduct of the war. And because of the um, the, the deaths of uh, journalists, media workers, et cetera, um, there are very few media workers and really no Western media workers on the ground in Gaza because they'll be killed. Um, and which means that we don't have a good picture of what's occurring uh, for the civilians in Gaza. We don't have a good picture of what the conflict looks like, except from, you know, the, the brave journalists and media workers that have stayed on the ground and are uh, reporting for outlets like Al Jazeera and uh, some other outlets. Um, and the consequence for American kind of knowledge and, uh, you know, informing the American public about the conflict is pretty significant because you'll see repeatedly, for example, CNN will say that um, X, Y, or Z is claimed to have been happened uh, or claimed to have happened uh, by whatever source, including other media sources, 
with the final kind of footnote, CNN can't independently verify these. And so even when information is getting out there, it's with kind of an asterisk because Western media can't actually verify the information that's being reported. Um, and, you know, I think that that's one of the reasons that I do journalism. And, uh, you know, there are newsroom reporters that would call me an advocacy journalist because I'm a labor journalist. Uh, and even among labor journalists, I'm not too shy about where where my sympathies are. Right. Um, but ultimately, you know, one of the key roles of journalists is to be a voice for the people that don't have one and to be skeptical of power and to, um, you know, tell these stories. And right now, media workers can't do that. You mentioned in your um, in your Substack piece about this that um, that actually one of the founders of the News Guild um, ha <clears throat> had a vision of of journalism uh, that was to uh, you know to right <laughs> social wrongs, um, not to uh, you know neutrally report the facts about you know just kind of random things you know and and inform people of what's going on but you know the one of the founders of the news guild uh saw the saw the uh the purpose of journalism as uh you know to make the world better to inform people about injustices so that they know how to fight them right not just because like i don't know this thing is happening you decide right um but but he had a really particular view can you tell us about him so Haywood Brown, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm really interested to, you know, I, I'm actually not uh, certain if there are any biographies of him, but, you know, based on what I know, a uh, really interesting figure who was one of the most read columnists in the 1930s and was a huge supporter of, you know, the New Deal of progressive programs, I believe. Um, not sure when or if he resigned his membership, but at least at one point was a member of the Socialist Party. Um, he was one of the key founders of the News Guild, and he was actually doing it from a position of comparative privilege compared to a lot of newsroom employees who were incredibly just underpaid. Um, and it was it was an interesting situation in the news industry because uh, typographers and a lot of the production uh, you know workers were actually very very heavily unionized. Um, almost all, uh, pretty much all, I wouldn't say all, but very close to all. Um, newspapers had uh, unionized union uh, typographers even through the 20s uh, when union density was fairly low. Uh, but in comparison, the newsroom employees that were doing the writing were paired uh, were paid, you know, less even sometimes than the typographers. And so, you know, he was fairly well compensated because he was such a widely read, uh, you know, columnist. But he was very, very. Um, you know, aware of the situation more generally in the news industry. And, you know, I, it was a moment when um, particularly the idea of kind of neutrally reporting on what was happening in the country during the Great Depression um, really was um, kind of a farcical idea. And mm. particularly, you had a lot of struggle in newsrooms between journalists that were basically being given editorial lines by their publishers, the William Randolph Hearst, you know, the, the Chandlers of the, the world that were incredibly opposed to the New Deal, opposed to the Roosevelt administration. They were actually struggling to have some kind of honest editorial um, 
kind of um, a editorial, basically an honest editorial line on what was happening. Um, and so it was a real kind of moment of upheaval in the newspaper industry generally, along with the rest of the country. And this is kind of where the News Guild was born. And it very quickly, you know, within a span of a couple of years, really embraced a, you know, very progressive militant, you know, vision of unionism. Um, it was originally founded independently. It briefly affiliated with the AFL in 1936, but by 1937, it left for the CIO. And, you know, then they started talking about sending money to Spanish Republicans in, you know, Spain. I mean, they were incredibly involved in social advocacy and political advocacy um, on a range of things, including domestic programs that directly impacted them, like the National Recovery Act and various, you know, programs, um, but also, you know, in court packing. You know, part of the, you know, uh, discussion of changing the Supreme Court, they were active in advocating for it. So, mm -hmm. you know, this was where the guild came from and, you know, is, is kind of core to the guild's identity. And and so what is the uh, uh, what's the um, the the counter argument, I guess, you know, this is it. It, I, it really <clears throat> I have a difficult time kind of understanding uh, uh Understanding why the counter argument is persuasive to some people, because uh, it, it does seem to me that like, yes, you want to be truthful. You want to say the truth. But, you know, the view from nowhere is kind of it's strange to me. But but w the advocates of, of the view from nowhere or, or, you know, this this objective, you know, what what are their arguments against uh, a more of a um, principled kind of. Uh, you know, even activist journalism. So, you know, one thing that I think it's really important to emphasize is that um, the appeal to this kind of vision of, you know, a, a radical objectivity, I'll say, um, as part of the kind of code of journalistic ethics, you know, there, there was there were parallel moves toward correcting some of the issues with like um, you know, the, the more sensational journalism um, that was prevalent in the early 20th century. But the use of it by employers uh, and newspaper publishers has always been a one part of their business model because they want to sell newspapers. And two, it's been a union busting tactic, and it has been since the guild's inception. The um, American Newspaper Publishers Association, um, from the beginning of the guild, argued that membership in the guild would threaten a free press because it would create an outside association, an outside entanglement um, that would, you know, according to them, threaten any kind of hope of objectivity. And I mean, this was key to their strategy. And one of the reasons I know that is, you know. My grandfather was a member of the guild. My great grandfather and um, his brother, um, Harvey uh, Kelly, actually helped bust unions and the guild specifically for the American Newspaper Publishers Association. My great uncle was the chair of their special standing committee on labor relations for the entire newspaper industry. Um, mm. This was their strategy. It was to create the perception that being a good journalist and being a professional journalist was incompatible with being a union worker. Um, and unfortunately, you know, that's been internalized by a lot of journalists. Um, and even though the Guild has kind of fought over that for decades and decades and decades, 
you know, employers have still pushed these policies. Um, the guild hasn't always been successful in, you know, chipping away at some of the more egregious restrictions on the freedom of journalists to act politically outside of their job. Um, and, you know, people are getting it in journalism schools. You know, they're getting indoctrinated with the second they set foot into a J school. I taught a lot of University of Missouri uh, journalism students and they got it, you know, from day one. Um, and a lot of people, especially in the newspaper industry, the vast majority of reporters outside of some really prestigious publications are not particularly economically secure. Right. Um, just because of the general state of the newspaper industry. And so the risk of speaking up um, when you have all of these other pressures is scary. It's mm. deeply scary. And then on the other hand, you have the very prestigious people, uh, you know, the senior folks at, you know, prestigious publications that have kind of internalized this idea of, you know, the consummate kind of we're professionals, we're above the, uh, these kinds of things, um, which they can do because they have a level of security and prestige that nobody else in the newspaper industry has. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of pressure on people um, to just kind of internalize this kind of concept of this kind of... Um, uh, this kind of weird view from nowhere approach to journalism. Right, right. And and so that is that has been the argument from within the guild uh, to uh, to say, no, we shouldn't endorse a ceasefire in Gaza um, at, at this point. Right. Pretty much. And it's come from, you know, um, primarily, you know, legacy newsrooms. Mm. that um, are, again, comparatively not saying that they don't have issues and that there aren't, you know, internal, you know, um, kind of hierarchies within those newsrooms. But, you know, these are ones where there's a little bit more prestige and there is a culture of fear with their management. You know, I I don't want to speak too much to what I've heard about, you know, the New York Times, working at the New York Times, but mm. I wouldn't necessarily <clears throat> say that they're particularly respected or report or, um, you know, respected or supported uh, by, right. you know, their, their management. And I would say the same at the Washington Post or any, you know, Reuters, Associated Press, any of these places. Um, and there definitely is a strong editorial push for a certain sort of coverage on a lot of things, especially on uh, Gaza. Um, and it's difficult to push back against that, especially when you're in maybe a, a unit that hasn't really fought a ton over the past couple of decades. Um, right. You know, um, it, it can be scary to, to take that step. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I sympathize a lot with a lot of journalists who feel really torn um, between mm -hmm. what they understand to be their professional obligations, uh, employer pressures, and not having a history of that kind of collective action to be able to think, no, we, we can actually have our own voice in talking about this issue and what we want to do in talking about this issue. So it's it's a tough situation and it's playing out in newsrooms, whether guild or not, all over the country right now with coverage of Gaza. And how is uh, how is the campaign going? How, how did it start uh, the move to push the uh, News Guild uh, internationally to call for a ceasefire? And, and where does that campaign stand right now? 
So, you know, it initially started among rank and file members, um, some of whom are journalists, some of whom um, the Guild represents a lot of union staff and nonprofit workers as well, um, who are, you know, very socially and politically engaged, you know, is just part of their job, including, I mean, we actually, my local, the Washington Baltimore News Guild, represents the staff of Jewish Voice for Peace. Um, and, you know, so we represent some of the people on the front lines of fighting for a ceasefire. And, you know, there's a tension between these newsrooms that, um, you know, have this perception of what the guild should do or shouldn't do uh, because of their kind of viewpoint of journalism and the reality that the guild represents a lot more than just newsroom journalists. Um, and it historically always has, you know, it's, it's never right. always been newsroom journalists. My grandfather worked in advertising, you know, he, he had done some journalism, but he ended his career in the advertising department. Um, and so, you know, it started there and really started trying to have that discussion with the executive council. And one of the things that I will say, um, and this is just my viewpoint is that, um, the guild has an incredible internal democracy. Um, and I think that there are very few other unions, if any, where people raising this concern would be given a platform to speak directly to the executive council of the entire, you know, international union um, within a couple of weeks and to voice their concerns um, directly to the executive council. And it's, it's something that I think is really, I value a lot about the guild. Um, there still is a lot of hesitation about, you know, a ceasefire. Um, the Guild had mm -hmm. already called for protecting journalists and for the uh, combatants in Israel specifically to respect the fact that journalists are protected by the Geneva Conventions. Um, and they just recently reiterated that call along with committing to financially supporting um, the um, International Federation of Journalists uh, fund for reporters on the ground. Um, most mm. of whom are going to, it's going to mostly be going to Palestinian journalists, um, right. as well as, again, you know, just reiterating the, um, the importance of um, protecting journalists uh, as well. So it's still an ongoing discussion. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a deep, I'm not going to say fissure because I, I think that overstates it, but it's, it's, it's a deep question in the guilt about, you know, right. what the relationship is between, you know, journal, a, a journalist, what they view as their professional obligations and the guild as their union. And from my perspective, I think that even a journalist that believes in this kind of view of no, from nowhere kind of uh, commitment can still support. And historically, that has been an argument that um, folks in the guild, uh, you know, embraced. You can commit to that in your day job while still supporting collective action through your union on political matters. Mm. And if anything, I would say that that reemphasizes the importance of doing it as a union, because then it's not calling into question any individual journalists, you know, political commitments or, you know, they're, they're not, you know, putting their name to something. It's right. their union is standing up for something. So to me, it actually reemphasizes the importance of if you want to take a stand and you believe it's important, then do it through your union. Um, but it's an ongoing discussion that's going to have to keep continuing. Um, and honestly, has a lot bigger implications, I think, for a view of what people want the, the guild to be um, mm. as one of the most, you know, militant and organ. I mean, pound for pound, it's done some of the most organizing of any union in the country over the past, you know, um, six, seven, eight years. 
I mean, it's enormous amounts of organizing. Um, and I think that, you know, there, there needs to be a discussion about um, how do we, what is our vision of what the guild should be? Um, and I think that that's a conversation. I have my opinions, but, you know, I think that that's something that the membership uh, needs to really kind of um, figure out. And, and it's a conversation that I think is really happening in a productive way right now, um, precipitated by, you know, the, the debate over the ceasefire. Um, uh, Jacob, I was just going to yeah. jump in real quick to say that what you just described and in, in those kind of conversations that are happening and in some cases, I'm hearing that from other people in other unions as well, uh, mm. where this sort of internal organizing around this issue is happening. And uh, I talked to a brother yesterday who told me that it's actually brought a lot of his coworkers and, and union members together in, in a new way, um, you know, it, People that didn't normally talk to each other or maybe weren't normally very engaged in the union uh, are now all working together in solidarity uh, for this effort and, and are really, you know, building some relationships that hopefully will, will gain steam and, and lead to just more positive transformation all around. Uh, you know, Connor, there's the on the electoral front. Um, APAC has been making a lot of uh, a, a lot of moves to try to discourage um, any elected officials from weighing in, uh, you know, against Israeli aggression on behalf of Palestinian, uh, you know, justice and, and peace for them. Uh, and it it was mentioned in in the chat uh, by many doctors, you know, concern about if APAC is going to be um, uh, going to be kind of wading into these waters with um, against the News Guild and and uh, similar. I, I saw similar worries on Twitter about the UAW after the UAW International called for a ceasefire. Um, you know, there uh, there there was somebody expressing concern about how this would affect the new uh, stand up you know, 2.0 campaign to organize non-union workers. Is there any indication that, that, you know, institutionalized, uh, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it Israeli support groups like APAC are going to be waiting into this, uh, on the labor front? I haven't seen any, I think it's a real concern. Um, and, you know, I think that there have been glimpses of outside groups interfering in internal union matters um, or um, going after unions on social issues uh, for some time now. I think that my viewpoint would be that were that to happen, I would hope that every labor union, every labor leader, regardless of their viewpoints individually and institutionally on the question of a ceasefire, would categorically fight any attempt to attack the labor movement for decisions reached by individual unions, um, as well as attack any attempt to um, interfere in internal union democracy. Hmm. And I would say that that, from my perspective, that is a categorical red line that the labor movement should maintain that our internal democracy and our internal deliberations are our own. Outside right. interference in those um, is categorically off limits. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, ultimately you can disagree with where we end up as an outcome of that democratic process, um, but you don't get to attack the process itself. Um, because I think that that's a really important red line in maintaining internal union democracy, because otherwise, um, you know, um, it, it can get 
it, it opens potential floodgates for outside domination of, uh, mm. of internal union life. Um, and I would say that, you know, I don't know in, in any kind of detail um, all of APAC's donors, but there are definitely some that I, some large ones that I can think of um, that um, also are owners of businesses that employ mm. union workers. And I would say that, you know, if they start getting involved in anything internal with unions or trying to influence the internal direction of union discussions, I would say that there is some major legal concerns there that the Department of Labor should be looking into because it's categorically illegal for companies um, or anyone that employs, um, you know, union uh, workers or employs workers in an industry that labor is trying to organize. Um, to interfere in internal union matters um and well, so i think that, i would say you know, that you the, know i think that that would be definitely an issue um the uh, trying to sway members one way or another right. or antagonize them against their leadership for this uh right. but i think my <clears throat> what comes to my mind immediately would be um you know apac running commercials in huntsville you know targeted at toyota workers saying you know the just and, and like because the the way mm. that APAC has been fighting the politicians that they don't like has not been look they hate Israel right because people don't right. you know, really working people don't care about that you know that it's just not something that that most working people you say the UAW called for a ceasefire in Gaza okay mm -hmm. that's fine I don't care uh, that that's even you know it'll range from like ambivalence to neutrality to 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 good you know in most right. cases in more cases than in, in in more cases UAW called for a ceasefire is going to elicit a good emotion than a bad emotion right so but mm -hmm. that's not how they're attacking the politicians they're attacking the they're just saying they're not good Democrats for totally different reasons right they're not even going after them on the question of Israel at all it's totally different reasons just general right. anti ads towards these right. against these politicians and so my my potential concern would be you know apac running a commercial here uh you know on the radio or on facebook targeted at huntsville toyota workers saying you know uaw bad right not uaw's right. pro-palestine but uaw bad and and, and yeah. similar for news guild as y'all are organizing new shops and stuff like that that would be I, I think the kind of the concern that that would come to come to the 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 front of my mind uh but but i like you i haven't seen any indication that, that that's on the horizon yeah and you know i think that ultimately if it's not them it's going to be someone else mm -hmm. um and you know i mean you know even better than me you know the role that um you know, right-wing politicians have played in attacking, um, you know, UAW's past campaigns in the South, you know, in Tennessee, yeah, you know, the company was technically neutral in uh, Chattanooga, but, you know, they, they, they could claim that because they knew the politicians were going to do the dirty work for them. Right. So, you know, from my perspective, look, they're going to pull that, they can pull that. Um, I think that that's really um, not going to be particularly more you know damaging than just any other aspect of a typical boss campaign um i guess the only difference would be that they got a lot of money to pour into it yep. um but again you know i would be very curious and this is something i don't know um at what point does an outside group trying to influence the outcome of a union election um 
start to interfere with the right of workers to have, you know, the NLRB current under the current NLRB, they're very big on laboratory conditions for, mm. um, you know, without any kind of like, you know, scare tactics or anything like that. Um, I would be very curious to know, um, you know, how that could impact the elections, how they could be held accountable for that. Or, you know, if employers that I, if I were an employer looking at the current NLRB and looking at um, the standard for elections right now, mm-hmm. I'd try to warn off anyone right. that thinks they're trying to, you know, trying to help me because, yeah. you know, I don't want to get the NLRB to say that, no, you know, that was, um, you know, that, that tainted the election. We're just going to issue a bargaining order. So, yeah. you know, I, I'm not sure what possibility there is to do that when you have outside kind of messengers um kind of paying to influence a union election um but you know i i think that there are probably more ways that it could blow up in their face than ways that it can hurt organized labor if they try to go that route from your lips to god's ears if i am a news guild cwa member and uh i want to sign on to the uh um call to push the national union to call for a ceasefire where do i need to go well that is a very good question and i wish i had a clear answer i should have had one uh prepped but um i mean i think that the best way to um for you know just just the meantime um is that you can uh on twitter i'm not going to call it whatever the hell it is um you can uh follow the um actually going to look up the account as we speak. I'm kind of riffing here. Um, you can follow the uh, Twitter account at um, CWA um, underscore four. That's the number four underscore Palestine. Um, and that's a good um, kind of point of <clears throat> reference. You can it has open uh, DMs, I think. So you can DM that account and ask for some more information. And it's also got a link tree that goes to a variety of different things, including, you know, um, donations to journalists uh, in Gaza and that kind of thing. So that would probably be the best kind of initial point would be to follow the Twitter account CWA underscore uh, number four underscore Palestine. Um, so you're not only um, organizing in that area, you are also, uh, like I said, president of the Seven, Mountain, uh, Seven Mountains Central Labor Council in Pennsylvania, and you have been doing a lot of work with the building trades in passing local ordinances and electing local politicians, um, particularly on you know their friendliness to labor. Uh, so talk to us about both of those things. How and we can start with the ordinances. Um, the uh, uh, explain to us what the ordinances that you have been able to get passed are and how you built up a, a coalition to uh, uh, for for a successful campaign. So as some background, Center County um, has, um, which is where, you know, State College, Penn State, you know, uh, and is one of the four counties in our labor council. Uh, the most populous one has an enormous amount of development uh, in the State College area. Um, a lot of it is just there's always some kind of building project going on at um, Penn State's campus, um, but just the area is growing and it has been mm-hmm. growing for a long time. And, you know, there there's a lot of um, major construction going on, both uh, public and private development. 
It also has a major issue with worker safety. Um, and there have been a number of worker deaths on the job, um, primarily within the construction trades, um, including a, a days in worker that uh, fell to his death. Um, he was from Maryland. He was working on, uh, pardon, he was working for a contractor, local contractor. Um, as the general contractor, but was directly employed by a subcontractor based in Maryland. And he was actually here on the job from Maryland uh, and fell to his death. Um, mm. It's really, I think, a basic you know, idea that a worker should be able to come home safely from their job at the end of their shift. Um, and this is not the reality for uh, construction workers in our area. And so what we did is we looked at different ways that we could actually try to address that. Um, we can't do that much about private development um, because uh, state law in Pennsylvania restricts um, local government from a lot of regulations uh, for, uh, for private business. Um, basically the only city in, um, Pen in Pennsylvania that can really get away with regulating private business is Philadelphia. Uh, because of the way the municipal code is written. And so one way that we can do something um, is actually create some standards that so at least on public projects, they have to meet certain standards. Uh, and it's uh, typically called a responsible contractor ordinance. Some places it's called a responsible bidder ordinance, but it's basically changing the local government's purchasing code to say, before we enter into a contract for someone for construction work, they have to meet these kinds of pre-qualifications. Um, and usually it's saying that we haven't committed, you know, significant wage and hours violations over the past couple of years. We haven't uh, committed uh, significant OSHA violations. We haven't been debarred by any public agency. Um, and we have the necessary craft labor to be able to do this job and that we have the necessary apprentices or you know apprentice completers within the respective craft you know category to be able to do this job correctly so it's basically just a bare minimum we're not you know a rat contractor and you know we actually use trained workers it's a very very basic uh Kind of proposal and it's important because under pennsylvania law local government is obligated to accept the lowest quote unquote responsible bid mm. but the term responsible is completely undefined and so in practice what it means is they have to submit the lowest bid and the way that contractors get the lowest bid is by misclassifying their workers by saying that someone that's doing eight hours in bricklaying is doing four hours in bricklaying and four hours as general labor, which is wage theft mm -hmm. and actually led to one of our local contractors um, being the subject of the largest uh, criminal prevailing wage uh, case in US history and paying back wow. over 20 million in stolen wages. Um, and this uh, particular company even after stealing $20 million from their employees can go and bid on a public project. Um, they're in the process of potentially getting debarred from, um, you know, uh, Pennsylvania Department of Transportation product, uh, projects. Uh, but if they bid on a local government uh, project and they're the lowest bid, local government has to take that bid, which means that taxpayer dollars are going to a company that's stealing money from its workers. Um, and so that's what we kind of um, 
kind of sought to do was to give local government the ability to actually set standards saying that tax dollars aren't going to go to contractors that are cutting corners on jobs that are stealing wages from their workers that aren't doing good work and aren't doing their work honestly. Um, and we managed to actually uh, pass that at the county level, which was much more difficult because, um, you know, Center County is, I would say after the election, I would say it's probably a blue county. But before that, I would have said it's a pretty purple county. It's, it, mm. it's not that long since it was a Republican controlled county. Um, and we passed it at the county level. And then um, overwhelmingly, after a lot of political work and mobilization, reelected the majority commissioners that helped us pass it, even though, um, you know, the local GOP was throwing the kitchen sink at trying to um, to unseat them. And they actually got the highest vote totals of any county commissioners um, in county history. Um, and a lot of that was that we were able to go to a lot of our members, um, a lot of whom are Republicans. A lot of them are Republicans, right. uh, especially in the trades, and say, look, they are actually delivering for you. They are doing tangible things to make you safer, to make jobs, to provide jobs for you locally. Uh, so they're not, you know, bringing in unskilled workers uh, from, you know, other counties, that there are jobs for apprentices right here. Um, and so it really, I mean, I was a nervous wreck heading into the election. Um, and, you know, ultimately, we, we, we were able to fight and get it at the county level and deliver pretty much a mandate that, you know, that's what voters wanted. Um, right. And we built a coalition of the trades. We built a lot of support from elected uh, officials that were supportive, um, community groups, community leaders. I mean, it looked very different than most RCO fights because at the final voting meeting um, that the county commission had, we outnumbered the contractors and it wasn't all, you know, union building trades folks. Um, it was Pennsylvania, it was Penn State professors. Um, it was elected officials. It was just community members. It was retirees. There were a couple of unorganized, you know, construction workers there. Um, we had a very diverse set of people speaking for why this was important to them, and that really helped pay off. That's awesome. That that's really great. And it it was actually so successful that you've kind of um, began, uh, you know, occupying the headspace of some local. Republican power players rent free. Is that, I think I've seen you uh, on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, they're coming after you. Oh yeah, they um, they are salty about the uh, the labor council. Um, and I will say, you know, in, in full candor, we did spike the football a little bit after election night. So I think that <laughs> we got a reaction from that. Um, but you know, ultimately, they are out just dramatically out of touch if they think that attacking union workers um, in the year 2023 in Pennsylvania of all places <laughs> is going to pay off for them. Uh, and, right. you know, if, the, if that's the route that they want to go, then by all means, I welcome them continuing down that road because it's just a road to marginalizing themselves. Have you written any, um, uh, you know, you've got you've got a Substack, uh, and and you're you do freelance journalism uh, sometimes. H have you written any sort of uh, uh, you know play by play of this uh, of your um, RCO campaign that other uh, that that you know other labor councils could could look at and uh, use as, as their own roadmap? 
I've been trying to think about the right place to do it because I thought about doing that um, because I think it would be helpful. Um, and these measures have expanded dramatically throughout Pennsylvania over the past couple of years. And they've been in place in even in places like Indiana and Ohio for a long time. Um, I mean, there it got very partisan in our area, mostly because we've got a ton of scab contractors headquartered mm -hmm. here that bankrolled the local GOP. Um, but in a lot of places, you know, it's it hasn't I mean, it's been passed in, you know, Republican controlled counties, you know, Republican controlled right. you know, cities, including in Pennsylvania. So I've I've thought about the best place to do it, you know, reporting. I'm too close to the story, even from, you know, I may be an advocacy journalist, but I'm too close to the story to, right. to feel comfortable reporting on this, you know, specifically. But um but yeah, I, I, it's something that I've definitely been looking at trying to figure out how to write up because I think that there's some good um, stuff that would be helpful for folks, you know, in a wide range of areas, not just in, you know, right. um, democratic, you know, places. And I, I've even talked to some folks in um, some more red counties in Pennsylvania that are interested in doing similar stuff. Mike could uh, reach out to NABTU and, and get them to pay you to write up a a training program and you can tour the country talking to building councils. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I just got to say, I really, uh, I love the story and um, I'm inspired and I think that we can do some work here in North Alabama uh, and would love to be able to, you know, learn from your success and try to implement that here in our neck of the woods. Yeah. All right. Appreciate it, Connor. Thanks for taking the time. All right. Thanks fellas. Always happy to be on. Yeah, appreciate yep. you. Talk Keep soon. up the good work. All right. Um, yeah, Connor Lewis, News Guild member, president of the Seven Mountains Labor Council, doing some great work over there in uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, appreciate the conversation about Palestine and the internal union organizing that's happening there. Uh, you know, I, I feel that it's important for our unions to take a stand and... Um, I was kind of brought into politics by thinking about international issues and the Iraq war in particular. Um, you know, I was really thinking about that before I mm. got into thinking about labor unions. Um, but yeah, I think it's really, it's, it's important work uh, that's happening. I uh, was really appreciating hearing about the internal democracy of the News Guild. Uh, that's important and worth highlighting as well as uh, the need for us to protect our union democracy from outside forces. Yeah. Uh, I think those are legitimate concerns. And I think the more power we build, because there is momentum behind labor movement now, and people are talking about us, like folks who didn't normally talk about labor. And right. um, it's on people's radar in a new way. And whenever that happens, you know, you have to expect reactions. And so the bad guys are going to fight back even harder. We have to be prepared for that. Yep. Metal 1520 says, thanks for keeping me company while delivering the mail. Great show. Thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, thank you for your service. We uh, we back the blue, uh, the Postal Service here. Big backers of the Postal Service. Um, so uh, here's something. GM, we were talking about GM uh, over in Spring Hill converting uh, 125 uh, employees to permanent status from temporary status and how this is really going to be a life-changing um, situation for, you know, 
dozens of uh, workers in Tennessee, and uh, we are actually we've actually got a uh, interview scheduled with one of those um, perm- uh, one of those newly permanent employees and the president of the local union UAW local eighteen fifty three that I'm looking forward to bringing y'all. Um, and so that's a really feel good story about GM. Here's a really feel bad story about GM. Um, stock buybacks. They are. Uh, they have announced recently a new stock buyback program, and uh, you know what? S- stock buybacks. What the, functionally what those do is is inflate the. Um, uh, they they inflate the stock price by decreasing the amount of stocks that are on the market. Right. You know so. So that that kind of makes sense, you know. If I if I'm a company and I have a hundred stocks and each stock is ten dollars, if I buy back ten of those stocks for a hundred bucks, then there's only ninety stocks left on on the market, and so each one of those stocks is going to be worth a little bit more, you know, supply and demand kind of thing. So it's a uh, market manipulation <laughs> a little bit, uh, and it was before Ronald Reagan illegal to do that, but that's what stock buybacks are. Um, and, and it's meant to increase stock prices. The reason that GM wants to increase stock prices is because after the UAW contract um, and during the negotiations and during the strike, the GM stock price has been falling. And so this has created uh, some concern among the, the executive class at GM. And so they want to increase the stock prices so that the people, the shareholders, continue to make money and they continue to elect the uh, CEO to be CEO. And it's really kind of a vicious, uh, you know, parasitic kind of thing. Like, oh, you make me as a shareholder more money and then I'm going to keep electing you CEO. Doesn't like, are you making a good product? Are you treating your workers well? That's not really in the mind of a lot of, of, a lot of shareholders. It's, are you making me money? So... Um, that, that's why they're issuing the, um, they're doing the stock buyback, buyback program. And one of the reasons that their stock has been falling has been because of the concern around, uh, labor costs from this new UAW contract. And, um, the total cost of the increase, the the total increase in labor costs. Uh, is projected to be about $9.3 billion over the next four, four and a half years, you know, over the course of the contract. And so that sounds like a lot, $9.3 billion. And so you hear that... For how many years, remember? For like four and a half years. That's the increased price. And that is the reason that the stock price is falling, remember? And that is also the reason that GM is saying that they are going to increase car prices by about 500 bucks a pop which you know when you consider the price of cars nowadays 500 bucks a pop is really not just a whole lot of money but you know that's cars fu- are really expensive cars are ridiculously expensive and 500 dollars you know in and of itself is that's a, that's a lot of money um and so that's that's the whole justification for this thing right 9.3 billion dollars over four and a half years that's why you consumer are going to have to pay 500 dollars more per car that's what they're saying. And so this stock buyback buyback program that they announced a couple of weeks ago, the company said it, and I'm reading from ABC News, the company said it, it plans to buy back $10 billion of its shares 
over the next year, 12 months, $10 billion over 12 months, which is about one quarter of its $44 billion market value with $6.8 billion in stock buybacks coming immediately. A spokesman, uh, a spokesman says GM expects the stock buyback to end up at about 20% of the company's outstanding shares based on expected price increases. Now, now wait a second, Jacob. Yeah. You're telling me that the new contract cost about $9.5 billion over four mm-hmm. and a half years. Yeah. And that's why you have to pay $500 and, more a car. And, and that's why right. it costs more to buy a Ford or a GM right. or... Because yeah. the workers are greedy. Right, right. Yep. Yeah, the workers. And um, and they yeah, make too much what? money. Last I checked, $10 billion was a, a little bit more than that. Um, are you... 10's more than 9. And also uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. 10 over one year versus 9 over four and a half years. Interesting. Um, so, I don't know. Just seems to me like if they're charging more, they're spending more. On stock buybacks. They're spending more on that than they are on the workers and the new contract. So when you hear folks say that, and you are going to hear those folks, I know we'll hear them down here. Wherever you're at, you're going to hear these folks complaining that because of the UAW, because of the union workers, because folks are are greedy, they want to be paid too much, Mm -hmm. that's why it's costing more. Yeah, uh, but and the cra- now you know, right? Now you know that that is bullshit. But also, you know, even on the labor cost itself, like just in isolation. Okay, like now take out of your mind this stock buyback plan. They're planning to spend more money in one year on stock buybacks than they're paying in increased labor costs over four and a half years. Okay, just forget about that for a second. <clears throat> the concern in isolation. Is that a lot of money? $9.3 billion over four and a half years increase in labor costs. Is that a lot of money? That's what the company will tell the consumers. And when they're doing public facing press releases, but on shareholder calls, that's not what they're saying. On a shareholder call, CEO of GM, Mary Barra, said the new labor contracts were higher than the company expected, yes, but not significantly. So what she's saying saying to her shareholders is like, yeah, you know, it's a little bit more than we expected, but it's not really that much. It's not really, it's negligible. It's not really a big deal how much more money that we're going to be spending over the next four and a half years. Which is quite starkly different (laughs) from how she was talking just a few weeks ago during the strike, right? Right. Absolutely. You know, total ghoul behavior from these people and from the from the class of people that are going to be repeating this stuff about you having to pay five hundred dollars more per car because of the workers, because there are there are some people, you know, like I think probably, you know, the the radio hosts on local stations, they fall into a class of people that they just don't know anything. Right. You know, like we've (laughs) we've talked to one person who, you know, he did he didn't know what right to work was he hadn't heard of the mckay doctrine he didn't think that you could fire striking workers you know like some people are just totally clueless 
and they see something on the news and it kind of fits their narrative about workers bad. Workers make too much money. Workers greedy, you know. Unions bad. They see that something that fits that narrative and they, they just run with it and they don't do any investigation and they don't feel any need to do any investigation and so they don't. Uh, and they just run with it and they don't know any better. Uh, and then, But there is another class of people who follow this kind of stuff and continue to parrot this company propaganda uh, that, is, and, and, that are just liars, right? And, and among that class of people are the, is the executive class at these companies because they know these numbers, obviously. And yet a couple of weeks ago, like Adam said, they were, they were running around like chickens with their heads cut off talking about how much the UAW is asking for and how it's unreasonable and how it would, uh, you know, totally destroy the company. And now they're saying the increased labor costs are not much higher than expectations. Right. Oh, and, you know, here's another thing about this kind of talking point, because we encounter it so much and it's like, okay, you're complaining that they're making more money, but out of the other side of your mouth, you're always talking about making more money. Like, that's what drives you in life. Right. Because... Frankly, a lot of the people who say this kind of stuff, that's what drives them, making more money. That's what they care about, right? A lot of times it's small business owners that are saying these kind of arguments. Yeah. They are about making more money. Why do you have a grudge against these auto workers? They figured out a way to make more money. Right. That's what you've devoted your entire life to. It's why you don't work. You employ Mm -hmm. other people to work for you because you want more money. And you figured out that that's the way for you to get more money. Well, they have figured out that collective action and collective organization is a way for them to get more money. Right. Why are you hating? Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. It's awful. It, it, it should make you mad. It should make you mad. Here's another, uh, here's another story about corporate greed, but this, uh, this is probably going to put a smile on your face. We've been following the issue with Tesla in Scandinavia uh, fairly closely. I'm... Um, you know, in intermittent conversation with some journalists over in Sweden, trying to get uh, trying to get them on the show. Um, I'd like to get them on the show next week, but we're going to see we're going to see what happens. Um, but there, uh, Tesla is having a, a big issue with um, with its Swedish uh, uh, <laughs> with its Swedish part of the company, um, as their mechanics at Tesla in Sweden have gone on strike. And in Scandinavia, uh, they have, in very many ways, more freedom than workers in the United States. Uh, In particular, freedom around their work and the freedom to engage in sympathy strikes when they want to. You know, in the United States, it's illegal to go on a secondary strike, to strike a company, uh, uh, you know, to to strike a company's goods if you are not, you know, at, employed by the company yourself, right? So if I'm a, um, you know, if, if I work for, uh, you know, widget company A, and there's a widget company B is a component piece in widget company A, you know, widget company B, their workers can't go on strike to support the widget company A's striking workers. That's illegal in this country, um, land of the free, right? But in Sweden and Norway and Denmark and all these Scandinavian countries, it is not. They have that freedom. And so after the Swedish mechanics went on strike and Tesla continued to refuse to um, engage in collective bargaining with them, uh, then other Swedish unions went on strike. 
There are now as many as eight unions in Sweden that are engaged in strikes against Tesla and Tesla products, including the postal union. The, <laughs> the, the, the post office in Sweden is no longer delivering mail to Tesla. I mean, that is just incredible. Uh, <laughs> so, and, and Musk took the postal union to court over this. They're like, this is a government service. You can't stop me from getting a government service, blah, blah, blah. And the, and the court was like, yeah, no, they can. That's fine. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so the union won the court case in Sweden. It, that's incredible. Really excited by that. Uh, another big fat L for Elon Musk. But the L's just keep coming, coming because, uh, Port workers, dock workers in Denmark, Norway, and now Finland are all blocking deliveries to Tesla. So any nice. Tesla products coming from any of those any of those countries are no longer going to be loaded onto the docks. Um, and any Tesla cars that get to Sweden's docks are not going to be unloaded because the Swedish dock workers are one of the unions that are engaging in sympathy strikes. But so the dock workers in Denmark, Norway, and Finland are no longer loading Tesla cars onto, uh, onto the boats to get carried to Sweden. So, um, a really amazing display of solidarity over in Scandinavia. And it still keeps coming because... Uh, one of Denmark's largest pension funds announced that it is going to sell its holdings of Tesla stock over this issue, over the, the over Tesla's refusal to bargain with the Swedish mechanics. Um, so really, really, that's awesome. Yeah, Pension Denmark sold the shares at a market value of sixty-seven million dollars, according to Reuters. And uh, some Swedish pension funds have also urged Tesla to sign the agreement with the union, according to Reuters, but so far have held off on selling shares. So we're going to see if this, uh, if this trend continues of Scandinavian unions selling shares of Tesla. Now, is, this is an open question I, because I really don't know the law. Is, is there some regulation on pension funds in the United States in doing such a thing? Um, you know, could... I mean, unions have their own pension funds, and then, of right, course, right. there are state pension funds that unions advocate to defend and, and whose members make up the majority of, of the members. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I don't know if there is opportunity for more pressure and advocacy around our pension holdings, but you know, something I have considered is how many of us have our retirement invested in evil corporations that fight yeah. us all the time during our active life as workers. Uh, and that's wild. You know, we're investing in our own demise. And um, so I really applaud uh, Denmark's pension fund there for, for taking this stand. I think that's important. Um, you've got to hit them from every angle, right? And, I, and I, they're taking hits. <laughs> they're taking hits left mm -hmm. and right. And I love to see it. Right. I do think that, I do think that you, that, that, American pension holders that that are held well most American pensions are operated jointly with the union and the employer right 
Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think so. I don't know. I yeah, that it, it's a question. I I don't know. And if you're listening and you have some expertise on pension funds, eight four four eight nine nine eight eight five seven. Give us a call. Uh, um, send us an email. Yeah, let us know what you think. Uh, because that's a topic I haven't really explored. But um, you know, seeing something like this, it it makes you wonder. Yeah, yeah, and you know that's um the uh uh. Oh shoot. What was I going to say? <laughs> well, anyway, in terms of pension, you know, funds, if someone's listening and they do have some some knowledge of that, I would be really curious to know. Um, and I know you were going to talk a little bit about why sympathy strikes are, are so important, um, mm. and, you know, and why they're, of course, banned here in the United States uh, because of the power that they have. Right. And yeah, no, I mean, that, that it's it. It is really, and this is how uh, Scandinavian unions have gotten other U.S. corporations to capitulate as well. Um, you know, in particular, McDonald's and Toys R Us are a couple of corporations that went through this exact scenario um, where all of the Swedish unions uh, struck them, all of them, the, the printers, the postal carriers, everybody just struck uh, these belligerent U.S. corporations, um, and, and, that, and, and they got them to capitulate. And so we'll see what happens with Tesla. We'll, of course, keep following this. I'm going to try to get somebody from over there to talk to us about it. Um, but it is, you know, there is, the, the one difference I would say with Tesla is that Elon Musk is like a maniac. Um, and, I, and, you know, I think there was, there was an ideological element to um, McDonald's and Toys R Us. Um, but I, I don't think the... You know, the the shareholders and the boards of these other companies are not as erratic as Elon Musk. And so we'll see kind of what happens there if his other shareholders like kind of get the better of him and and force him to come to the table um, so that they can start making money again. Right. (laughs) Or if he'll uh, continue to be belligerent. Um, But but it's the in Scandinavia, these collective bargaining agreements are even more important than they are in the United States because Scandinavian countries don't really have the same government protections that um, that workers in the United States do. Um, and, and like, you know, Scandinavian countries, by and large, they don't have minimum wages. They don't have, uh, you know, vacation, overtime pay, all of this other stuff. It's all bargained collectively in the collective bargaining agreements. And so because 90% of private sector workers are covered under, you know, union p- collective bargaining agreements in Finland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, all these places. Uh, there is a de facto minimum wage in these countries of like 23 an hour or something like that uh, with six weeks, of va- six weeks of vacation. But that's not government mandated. That is uh, from workers collective bargaining power. And so that makes it that makes, you know, this kind of thing all the more important for these unions to be able to win because it's really an existential kind of thing for them. If Tesla is able to, to break through and break into their market and, um, and continue to operate non-union uh, without the same benefits in, in collective bargaining agreements that other workers have, then that could be you know, the tip of the spear for other capital to begin you know, breaking uh, Scandinavian unions like they have in the United States. And so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of support, uh, in those countries for these unions and, um, and a lot of, uh, commitment and a lot of reason to be committed, uh, 
on the on the part of these unions to to beat Tesla here. So we'll keep an eye on it. Yeah, absolutely. Sending all our solidarity uh, to our union kin across the pond over there in Scandinavia. Yeah. Keep up the good fight. Stidham Family Gospel says, generally the company pays a rate per hour work to the pension fund, and some are administered by the state. It's better to have a national pension so it cannot be filed in bankruptcy. Uh, Jose says, in sad news to report, the medieval Times Buena Park California workers had to return to work unconditionally, and three striking workers were not allowed to return. One of them was the strike captain. Yeah, that sucks. That's not good Mm. news to hear. Um, They have have had a really long struggle. Mm. Mm. Man, I hate to hear that. That That is a bummer. It's been a very long struggle. Um, Jim Vanderveen asks, how many workers at Tesla's California, um, Fremont, California plant have signed up with the UAW? It's not public yet. Um, yeah, that's a good question. So I know, we'll see. you know, there's been, there has been some public discussions of it, obviously. Right. So it's happening, uh, but they haven't, I guess, hit that 30% threshold yet, I'm assuming. Yeah, probably. Um, but I mean, the, the one reason is like there's 20,000 workers at the Fremont plant. It's a huge plant. So you know, thirty percent of that would be like it's a lot of people. Seven, six, six thousand people. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of people. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. I know you talked last week about you know the the campaign, but I think it really has the potential to transform the industry. It mm-hmm. has the potential to transform the labor movement, and I think it has the potential to transform the South, uh, yeah. places like Alabama. I mean, multiracial unionism militant unionism that's what we're lacking uh it is a missing ingredient to positive social change that we desperately need here and so um really excited um really really pulling for the uaw uh you know it's it's, change comes from the bottom up and it's going to take just rank and file auto workers joining together seeing how they have common interest and uh, you know, building their power together and and joining with the UAW and, and seizing the momentum because now is the time to do it. Uh, there is no better time than now. So if you're thinking about it, um, if you know people in the auto industry, point them in the right direction. Now's the time to unionize everywhere. Um, you know, if you're listening to this and you're a non-union worker, uh, reach out to folks uh, because there are people who will help you. Uh, you know. I know it's cliche that we call each other brothers and sisters and kin and uh, siblings, uh, but there are folks in this movement who really believe in that, uh, and they will help you. Uh, So that's what I encourage all workers to do is to organize, and and that's why we do what we do every week, uh, and it's why folks like y'all tune in, uh, and you know, the more we pull in the same direction, the more progress we'll make. With that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Appreciate everybody's time. Uh, We'll see you next week. Solidarity, y'all.